0: The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Good morning. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me uh, back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, uh, where we left off in Luke, and let me explain why we're going back there. Um, you're probably thinking our pastor is schizophrenic, he can't decide what to do, but... Um, Actually I have uh two conferences in October coming up soon uh that are I'm to bring messages in those conferences. I've got about seven, well six, uh and five of them are specifically two pastors and so I have to have time to prepare them. <laughs> and uh these sermons this next uh, little part of Luke um I already had prepared ahead of time, so in God's providence, I was ready for that. So I'm going to spend a few weeks in Luke while I'm working on getting ready for the conference, the two conferences, and then we'll come back and pick up with 1 Timothy again. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. Luke chapter 17, we left off at the end of chapter 16, and I'm going to read the first four verses. Then he said to his disciples, to the disciples, it is... Impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we open up the Holy Scriptures today, we thank you that we can do that, and that we have your very word in front of us. And Lord, we pray you would help us to approach your word with a proper sense of gratitude and also reverence. We ask that your spirit would come and illuminate our hearts, our minds to understand the truth, to receive it, believe it, and give us hearts, Lord, to obey your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I do think that this passage here is very timely, for us as a church. As you know, uh, our church is growing, new people are coming in, there are a lot of new believers and uh, new church members. It's a wonderful, uh, God-honoring, uh, encouraging, Christ-exalting time in the life of our church, but you can be assured that Satan does not take such things lying down. He's not sleeping, he's still walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And in such an environment, there's always the potential for issues to come up, for things to happen that bring great reproach upon the gospel. I'm not preaching on this because that's happening, but it's, the potential is always there. Indeed, one thing that is true of every Christian and every member of our church is that sin has not yet been completely eradicated from our lives. Sin no longer reigns, in the life of the Christian, but it still remains. And therefore, there is always the potential for offenses and scandals and divisions to occur in a church that can cause a great stumbling block that injures people's faith and causes others to be turned off to the Christian gospel. And Jesus speaks to this very danger in verses 1 to 2 when he said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come. They're going to come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these uh, little ones. Jesus then goes on to tell us that in light of this, a true disciple therefore has two special duties. In light of this danger, the first duty is that of rebuking your brother when he sins. Verse 3a, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And the second duty is to be quick to forgive your brother when he repents, even if it is seven times in a day. Verse 3b, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, And seven times in the day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Well, it's these two duties that I want to address and open up for the next two or three Lord's days. And we'll begin today with the first duty in our text, the duty of confronting, what I'm calling confronting, one another in love. Is this mic too loud? Okay, it seems really loud to me. Okay. man, I feel my, all right, Good. The duty of confronting one another in love. First of all, notice the situation envisioned by our Lord. Verse 3, take heed to yourselves. The concern here is that we don't cause stumbling blocks. That word translated offense there could be translated as stumbling block. That's the idea. Take heed to yourselves about this. And if your brother sins against you, verse 4, and if he sins against you, seven times a day. So this is the situation that is envisioned by your Lord. It's one in which a brother has sinned against you. Now, what are you to do when that happens? Well, Jay Adams gives a very helpful illustration, and, and I draw from him some in this message. It's his little book on forgiveness of sin, forgiving one another. is an excellent little book, and he, he gives this illustration. It's kind of silly, uh, but it helps to put this in concrete terms. Here you are, and you're minding your own business. You're provoking no one to anger, just surveying the scene, And all of a sudden, literally or figuratively, most often figuratively, your brother or sister comes along, stomps all over your toes, and disappears over the hill. And there you stand, through no fault of your own, with ten toes flattened out like ten silver dollar pancakes. They hurt. Now, what do you do next? This is the situation. Your brother in some way has sinned against you, and this is the question, what are you supposed to do? When that happens. Or maybe I should ask this question. What do people often tend to do when something like that happens? Well, some people begin to feel sorry for themselves. And they have a pity party and they uh, mope around because of it. Others... Might have the opposite reaction. They might flaw off the handle and get mad, and and then seek somehow, whether in an overt way or in a kind of kind of subtle way, to retaliate. Now, others try may try to appear very spiritual, and put on a kind of a spiritual tone of voice, and they go to their friends and they say, you know, I need to tell you about what brother, sister, so and so did. Show them their flattened toes. I don't want to I'm not trying to be a gossip but I just want you to know for your own protection and also so we can pray so you and I can pray for brother so and so or sister so and so and then then others just stew over it and they carry a grudge around in their hearts. But these are none of the Jesus didn't say that in, these are not the things Jesus said we're to do. We're not to feel sorry for yourself, have a pity party. Jesus didn't say to do that. He didn't say, fly off the handle, get mad, retaliate. He didn't say to do that. He didn't say to go tell somebody else about it so the two of you can pray together about it and talk about it together. He didn't say to do that or stew over it. Have nothing to do with them anymore. No, that's not what he said. What did he say? Well, from the situation and vision, let's consider now the response required. What does he command us to do in a situation like that? He says, rebuke him, rebuke him. You're to go to that brother and you're to show him what he did to your toes. Brother, this is what you did. You sinned against me. You hurt me. Now, you're to do it in love, as we're going to see in more detail later. But you're to do it. Jesus does not allow you to sit in a corner and feel sorry for yourself or to tell others about it or to strike back in some way. No, he says, go to that brother or sister who has flattened your toes and rebuke him to talk to him about it. Show him what he has done. You say, but I was just minding my own business and he stepped on my toes. Shouldn't he he be the one who comes to me to make things right with me? Well, yes, he should. And Jesus speaks about that in Matthew chapter 5. He should come to you, but you're not to wait around until he does. You let God deal with him and his responsibility, and you do what Christ commands you to do. For one thing, he may not realize what he's done. He may not even know that he sinned against you. And he may not realize his sin until you show him. Or it may be, as is very often the case, that you've misinterpreted what was done. And when you go to him to confront him, lo and behold, you find out that things didn't really happen the way you thought. And it was all just a big misunderstanding. So you're not to wait. Jesus says you must go to him and address the matter. So here we have the first essential activity in this text when it comes to maintaining a healthy, harmonious, Christ-honoring climate in the church, confronting one another in love. Now, there may be some who wonder, what in the world does confronting one another have to do with love? In the minds of many people, even many professing Christians, confronting or rebuking a sinning brother is not only extremely unpleasant to do, but it seems to them to be a very unloving thing to do, but not according to the Scriptures and not according to Christ. The Scripture tells us, in fact, that confronting a sinning brother is one of the most loving things that we could do. It's easy to ignore sin in our brother. That's the easier road, the more selfish road. We can avoid the discomfort of it in this way, the self-sacrifice involved. But when we genuinely love our brother, we are to be willing to take the risk of possibly upsetting him at first in order to tell him the truth and to try to help him. We'll be willing to sacrifice our time and our comfort to try to help that brother to have a right relationship with Christ and with ourselves and with the church. Now listen to some of these texts that I want to read to you that, that put this idea of confronting one another and love together in the same context, in a complementary relationship. Leviticus 19, 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor. You see, to refuse to rebuke him is not love. It's a form of practical, at least, hatred. And in the, in the next verse, God says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Psalm 141, 5. Let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. Proverbs 9, eight, Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Proverbs 27.5-6, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Jesus said in Revelation 3.19, As many as I love... I rebuke. So confronting a sinning brother, when it's done properly and biblically, is not a mean thing to do. It's the loving thing to do, but there's more that needs to be said. It's not just confronting one another that's a loving thing to do. As I just hinted, it must be confrontation that is done properly and biblically. And when it's not done properly and biblically, it can do more harm than good. So I want to open this up further in the time remaining, and there are really two questions, I think, that need to be answered if we're going to do this in the right way. The first question is, what sins in my brother or sister should we confront, should I confront, okay? And the second question is, in what manner should we confront sin in our brother or sister, or exactly how are we to do it, okay? So let's begin with the first question. What sins in our brother or sister should we confront? When Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him, or some of the older manuscripts, and thus some translations leave out the words against you and simply say, if your brother sins, but either way, your brother has sinned against you, or he simply sinned in some other way. When Jesus gives us this command, is he telling us that we are to confront everything and anything in our brother that could in any way be interpreted as wrong? Are we to be constantly rebuking, repenting, and forgiving one another over every little little thing that happens? That's one extreme. Or is it only the really, really, really big things, the big sins? That's that's the other extreme. Now, because of this danger of going to extremes, we need to consider this question. And if we remember that we must always interpret any individual text of Scripture in a manner that is consistent with the overall teaching of Scripture regarding the subject that is being addressed, that will help us. And as we do so, I think we'll find that the Bible provides us with a balanced answer. Now, let me first give the answer in a summary form, and then I'll break it down and demonstrate it. What sins in our brother should we confront? The answer is, any sinful action that cannot be overlooked without harmful consequences. Any sinful action that cannot be overlooked without harmful consequences. Now, let me break this down. And again, here I, find, I found uh, Adams very helpful. First of all, any sinful action. Now, the word translated sins here in our text is one of the basic New Testament words for sin. And what is sin? What is sin? 1 John 3, 4 tells us that sin is lawlessness, or sin is the transgression of the law, the transgression of God's law. So Jesus is talking about something that is an actual violation of God's law, something sinful, a violation of biblical imperatives and directives. It's not that your brother has violated your own personal convictions or your own preferences about some issue that the Bible doesn't address. It's not simply uh, simply that your brother has done something that you don't like. He was distracted, and when he walked by, he failed to speak to you, or he spilled um, Kool-Aid on your couch. People even drink Kool-Aid anymore, but anyway. (laughs) He spilled red Kool-Aid all over your couch, or he grew a mustache, and you don't particularly care for that. You don't really think it's good for Christian men. Be uh, wear mustaches, they should be clean shaven or or for various reasons, she doesn't attend all the ladies' get-togethers. And you think she should. Well, that's just an opinion and preference, not scripture. No, the text is not talking about things like this, not talking about trivial matters or petty differences of practice and opinion, it's talking about something that is a bona fide sin. Your brother has done something that is clearly forbidden in the word of God. So it is any sinful action. Furthermore, it is any sinful action. Only sins of action should be confronted for the simple reason that we can't see into people's hearts. To make judgments about what is in his heart, to rebuke him for what you suspect, may be in his heart, unless his words or actions clearly reveal a heart problem, that in itself is sinful. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 14, 4, when he said, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. And when he said in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels, Of the heart. Judging the heart is the prerogative of God alone. Now, if there are actions and words that reveal a heart problem, an attitude problem, we can address that, but even then we have to be careful because we can never be certain what's going on in a person's heart. The thing we are called to confront is the sinful action that has come out of the heart. You know, just to say some brother... I think you have a bad attitude. Well, that's, that's not only vague, it can be very frustrating for that person. What do you mean I have a bad attitude? Well, you know what I mean. You have a bad attitude. Well, I don't think I have a bad attitude. Oh, yes, you have a bad attitude. Or, or you, I think you have a problem with pride. And I believe God wants me to confront you about your problem with pride. You think so? I hope not. Maybe I do. Don't we all? I mean, what do you mean, I have a problem with pride? I could just tell that you do. (laughs) Oh, you see, that's nothing but frustrating. It's not helpful at all. The issue is, has he sinned in some way? And if he has, it's his sinful action you need to confront. The judging of his heart is the prerogative of God alone. So it's any sinful action... It's any sinful action. Furthermore, it's any sinful action. There's nothing here about big sins and small sins. The word used is the general Greek word used for any kind of sin. Jesus doesn't say, if your brother sins a sin that ranks seven or eight on the scale of ten, rebuke him. No, he simply says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, the New Testament is full of examples of sins that were confronted by the apostles. In the early church, they include very heinous sins such as fornication, adultery, idolatry, drunkenness, false teaching. They also include more common sins like covetousness, gossip, cheating, legalism, divisiveness, deceit, and even laziness. All of these are sins, and all these sins, as well as any sin, are included in what Jesus says here. We really have no basis to restrict this command to only certain sins, any sinful action. But there's one last very, very important qualification, one last qualifying consideration. It is any sinful action, any sinful action, that cannot be overlooked without harmful consequences. Very important qualification. Pastor, do you mean to insinuate that there are some sins in our brothers and sisters that we should simply overlook. Yes, I do mean not just to insinuate that, but I mean to say that, okay? Now, where do you get that? Well, remember, we're not to rip this text out of its context, the general witness of the rest of Scripture on this subject, and there are places where the Bible tells us that sometimes we should simply overlook the sins we see in our brother. For example... We're told in 1 Peter 4, 8, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. All right? We read in, you know, there's those sins of infirmity and weakness that we all struggle with, and love says, Hey, brother, I'm just going to throw a blanket of love over that. Forget about it. We read in Proverbs 19, 11, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook, to overlook a transgression. So there are situations, multitudes of situations, as Peter says, when it's right to overlook our brother's sin. You see, there are common sinful weaknesses and blemishes that plague the best of Christians, character quirks in your brother. Areas where he still needs a lot of growth. Areas where he's simply lacking in maturity. And if we took the time to confront every possible sin that every Christian might commit, that's about all we would ever have time to do. And we would just be going around rebuking everyone all the time. Sadly, some people do that and seem to think that's their calling, right? So we have to be careful here. How do we know then? Whether to throw a blanket of love over it or to confront a sin in a particular situation. Well, I believe we can derive from Scripture three simple principles that I think will help us. Okay? Three principles. One, if the sin creates a barrier between you and that brother, then it needs to be addressed. Fellowship between you and that brother has been broken because of that sin. There's an unreconciled relationship. In that case, it needs to be addressed for the sake of peace and the unity of the body. You can't just let it go. That's the emphasis of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 5. You remember uh, verses 23 to 24 when he said, if your brother has something against you, go immediately and be reconciled to your brother. And that would work both ways, whether you're the offended brother or the offending brother. The point is that an unreconciled relationship is not to be tolerated and allowed to remain. When sin has created a barrier in your relationship with your brother or sister, it must be dealt with. A second guideline. If it's a situation in which you have no confidence that this brother already sees his sin and is already seeking to overcome it, Well, then you need to address it. But if you know he's growing in that area by confessing his sin, trying to change, you don't really need to admonish him. Why? Because that's the whole purpose of admonition, is to try to get him to do that. But if he's already doing that, you don't need to confront him. However, if you see no evidence he's even aware of the problem, or that if he is, you see no evidence he's really trying to grow and to change in that area, then you need to Graciously confront him because that may be the only means that God will use to awaken him from his spiritual inertia, help him to see this problem, and to bring about change in his life. And then a third guideline. If the sin is such that it will hurt others or bring reproach upon the cause of Christ, then you must address it. Then you need to make sure your brother has truly recognized his wrong and has repented of it. And that seems to be, be at least one of the major concerns of our Lord here in this text, considered in its context. Remember, he's talking about stumbling blocks put in the way of others that cause them to stumble in their faith. That's what he, how he opens up this, this discussion in chapter 17. There's this concern about causing others to stumble. Well, It's immediately after warning about that that Jesus says, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So these are three simple guidelines. What sins in our brother or sister should we confront? The answer, any sinful action that cannot be overlooked without harmful consequences. Either it cannot be overlooked without leaving a barrier between you and your brother, or it cannot be overlooked without endangering your brother's soul because he doesn't seem to be trying to address this sin in his life, or it cannot be overlooked without others being hurt by this sin, bringing reproach upon the cause of Christ. All right? So much for the first question. What sins should we confront in our brother or sister? Now with the second question. Very important. How should we confront sin in our brother and sister? I love... The illustration Jesus gives when he talks about the moat and the speck and the eye. Because what's more delicate than your eye? I mean, we don't like people coming around trying to pick stuff out of, my, out of our eyes, do we? I mean, you, you come to me and you're going to get into my eyeball, man. I'm going to be... I mean that, And, and it's, it can be a very delicate thing when we're trying to address someone about a problem or a sin, right? So how are we to do it? In what manner? Well, first of all, you must do it quickly. Quickly. This is implied here in the text. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. There's no indication there's to be any gap, gap of time, and this comes out even more clearly in the parallel text in Matthew 18:15. Jesus said, "If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault." And that verb "go" there is a present imperative, which could could be translated, be going. The impression is that you're to do it quickly. You're not to procrastinate. Another passage. Back to that Matthew 5 passage. Matthew 5, 23-24. I referred to it earlier. Jesus says, if you go to the altar to offer your gift, and you remember your brother has all against you, what does he say to do? Go! Leave your gift there, and go and be reconciled to your brother. In other words, don't even wait! Until you're finished, do it now. And then he follows by saying, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. Do it quickly. You see, it's very dangerous to put off admonition and reconciliation between brothers and sisters. It can be compared to leaving a little crack in a dam. The beginning of strife is like releasing water, the wise man says, Proverbs twenty-seven, fourteen. Imagine a gigantic hydroelectric dam. And what happens if that dam gets a little crack in it? And water starts to seep through, and then, more, then there's more cracks. And the process begins and more cracks and more cracks, until finally, to everyone's shock, one day, the entire dam bursts in the whole countryside is flooded and destroyed. So it is, with a little breach in a relationship that's left unrepaired. And this is only true in the church, by the way. This is true in marriage. whole other subject we could talk about. A little breach between brothers in Christ, a little breach in the unity of the church. If it's not quickly repaired, only God knows the terrible destruction in the church, that may be the end result. So, quickly. Secondly, sin in your brother must be confronted humbly. Humbly, you're not to go to him with a self-righteous, holier than thou attitude. Though you're to do it quickly, there is one thing you need to do first. Jesus said in Matthew, pray, of course, yes, but Matthew seven five. First, he said. Remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll be able to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Isn't that a graphic picture? Imagine someone with a two-by-four sticking out of their eye. And he's coming up to talk to you about the little speck that you have in your eye. And you're like, man, I... Jesus says, go, but examine yourself as you're going. Make sure you've dealt with, confess your own sins. When you take the time to look at yourself and to remind yourself of all of your faults and all of your own sins that God has forgiven you for, it will greatly help you to go and speak to your brother humbly. And if he knows and he senses that you're the kind of person who deals very ruthlessly with yourself, it will make it a whole lot easier for that sinning brother to receive your admonition. But if you come to him to engage in that delicate operation of picking out the speck that's in his, his eye, and the whole time you have this giant two-by-four sticking out of your own eye, it's going to be a lot harder for him to listen to what you have to say. Now, he still should, but it's going to be a lot harder for him. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It wasn't very long ago when our brother, Pastor Kinnicott, opened this, this passage up for us, Galatians 6, verse 1, Paul writes, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. When you go to that brother to address his sin, the Lord wants you to be reminding yourself as you go that you are just as capable of falling into that sin as your brother is even into the same sin. Go realizing that. Go reminding yourself of that. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And we see something else here in Galatians 6.1. Not only quickly and humbly, but thirdly, sin and your brother must be confronted gently. Gently. If a man is overtaken any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now, now, that's not to say that there's never any place for firmness, forthrightness, courage. Jesus sometimes confronted sin in very strong terms, and sometimes we have to do that. Paul, in, Galatians, in this same epistle, in Galatians 2, he speaks of a situation, you remember, when he had to withstand Peter to his face publicly and give a sharp rebuke to him before everyone. So there is a place for that, a time for that. But ordinarily, what should mark our approach when addressing sin in a brother is a spirit of gentleness. Especially, as the context here indicates in this particular situation, you're dealing with a brother who's not sinning with a high hand or with an obstinate, rebellious attitude. No, it says he's simply been overtaken in a fault. And that word overtaken carries... With it, the idea of a person who has been ensnared in a sin before he hardly even realizes it. He's overtaken. He's fallen into this sin. And such a want is to be restored in a spirit of gentleness. If you're harsh, it could tempt him to respond in the wrong way, to react in the wrong way, and to cut himself off from the help that he needs. But gentleness can go very, very far in helping your brother or sister to be receptive to your efforts your admonition proverbs 15:1 great proverb we all should memorize it a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up strife now gentleness can be exhibited in many ways you should try in your manner of speaking And in the tone of your voice, to be calm and not angry and harsh. You can explain to your brother or sister how you too have struggled at times with the same sin or with other sins. You can give the benefit of of the doubt and give him an opportunity to explain himself to make sure that you really have the facts right. Instead of just immediately assuming the worst and jumping right in. You can let him know that you find no pleasure in coming to him about this, but that you only do it because you love him and you want to be faithful to him just as you would hope that he would be to you. You should confess any sin that you may have committed against him. And if you don't know of any, then in the course of the conversation, you could ask him or her, are there any ways I've sinned against you? And be willing to, to listen to And if there are, ask His forgiveness. So when we are faced with a situation in which obedience to Christ and the unity of the church and faithfulness to our brother's soul requires us to have to confront Him about something, we are to do it quickly. We are to do it humbly. We are to do it gently. And then finally, if the sin is a personal offense, it's not something that was done in public like Paul rebuked... Peter publicly, because he did it publicly, right? But it's a private offense, not something that's common knowledge within the church or that has already resulted in public scandal, something the general church body doesn't already know about. Then you are, fourthly, to do it privately. Privately. Now, other passages tell us how to deal uh, with public sin in the church or with private sin that has escalated to the need "...to take witnesses, but the occasion envisioned by our Lord in our text is a private offense. And because it's such, it should be discussed among as few people as possible and necessary. Only those immediately involved or who need to know for some reason. You're not to tell other people about it who have no reason to know. And you're, you're not to take witnesses. Initially, you're to go to that brother and address the matter privately. Look at Matthew 18.5. Let's turn over there quickly. Matthew 18.5. 18.6, excuse me, 15, I'm sorry. 18.15. Moreover, Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell your friends. Go and tell the ladies' prayer meeting group. Go and tell the Sunday school class. Go and tell a couple of your friends and brothers and sisters, no, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You and him alone. That's very clear, isn't it? What's the goal? It says, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. It's to gain your brother, to restore a right relationship to Christ and to you and to the church what if he doesn't hear? what if he refuses to confess his sin it's an actual bona fide sin he refuses to confess his sin and ask forgiveness what do you do then well jesus goes on to tell us what to do you're to give some help you're to take witnesses and so on and in some cases after all the facts have been determined with witnesses in some cases it may actually have to come before the church But in the vast majority of cases, that doesn't have to happen. Most conflicts, most problems in the church can be solved privately, one-on-one. If we're committed to dealing with these conflicts and sins biblically in the way we've seen this morning, such things need never go beyond the private level. Well, I hope to come back to this next week. Uh, But this is the first essential element. In the maintenance of a healthy, harmonious, God honoring climate in the church, we must, when necessary, confront one another in love and do so within the guidelines and principles of Scripture that I've laid out for us. Now, let me bring all of this together with just a few more words of application. First of all, may we learn from this that each one of us, as members of this church, we all have a responsibility. We are to take personal responsibility for the spiritual welfare of one another in the church. And it can't be emphasized enough that this is not just the pastor's duty. This is the responsibility of everyone. All of those one another commands that we find in Scripture are not just directed to pastors, they're directed to all of the members of the church. The pastors can't do, in a sense you could say, the pastors can't do all the pastoring in the church. Sometimes you may know things about a brother or sister that your pastor doesn't know, no matter how hard he tries to be a faithful shepherd. You may see things in your interaction with the brethren that he doesn't see. People tend to be on their, I mean, let's face it, people tend to be on their best behavior when they're around the pastor. So if you see a need, a brother who is struggling with an area of weakness, a brother who is sinning, you're not just a hope. That's your hope. The pastors find out about that. Or maybe the pastor will see it and do something about it. No, you're supposed to do something about it. Speak to that brother about it graciously, gently, humbly, privately. But love him enough to go to him and tell him your concern. What a blessing it is for a pastor. Pastors who are trying to be conscientious to carefully shepherd the people of God and who often feel that there's so much that we may not even see or even get to. What a great blessing it is when they know they have a people who are committed to doing their part in taking care of one another, caring for one another's souls. But then a second application. This also means we are all to have an attitude that that welcomes that kind of input, correct? I mean, if you think it's nobody's business how you live, and you just want to be left to yourself, just kind of slip into the worship service from time to time and slip back out as quickly as you can. No accountability whatsoever. That, that's pretty much what church life is like in South Florida, by the way. You have even big churches that don't even have a church membership. They don't know who's there, who's not. There's no accountability. You know, you can, you can go hang out on the beach and drop in the church and go back out and maybe show up the next week, maybe not, maybe show up three, three weeks later. Who, nobody notices? who cares? If that's what you want, if that's what you the kind of church climate you want, that's not the kind of church climate and involvement the Lord Jesus intends for his church, for us as believers. Genuine biblical body life involves engaging in this kind of interaction with one another, and it involves a willingness to receive this kind of input from your brethren, and that means that, that if excuse me, that if a brother comes out of real concern for your soul, and he asks you about something, or he admonishes you about something, you don't get all offended at that. You welcome that kind of interaction. You have an attitude that says, I want my brother to come to me. If he's concerned about something, please do that. I want you to do that. Listen, brother, I'm willing to be helped in any area that you may think I need help. I want the help. It would bother me more if you saw something or I did something or somehow sinned against you in some way or another and you didn't say anything. That should be our attitude. May God help us to have that kind of attitude. And then finally and thirdly, let us be reminded by these things that sin is a very terrible thing. It's never to be taken lightly. It's not to be ignored. It's not to be winked at. Whether we see it in ourselves or in our brothers, sin is a very serious matter. It casts reproach and disgrace upon the gospel that we love. It damages the church's testimony before the lost. It furthers the work of the devil. It causes strife and division between brethren. It destroys churches. It presents a stumbling block before unbelievers. Sin is never a thing to be taken lightly, and that's clear from the measures that Jesus requires from us to address it when we see it in our brother. If your, sin, your brother sins against you, no big deal. Just ignore it. No, rebuke him, he says. And he tells us elsewhere that if after every effort has patiently been made and the brother still will not repent, you're to take others to help you. And keep trying to get him to see his sin. Also, the others can help you to see more clearly. When they hear both sides in, in neutral parties, to hear both sides and get all the facts together. And if it is confirmed that your brother is in sin and he still won't repent, the whole church may have to get involved. It's not just to be left. You see, sin is a serious business. We not only see that, though, brothers and sisters, by the measures that our Lord has given us to deal with it in our fellowship. But much more than that, think about the drastic measures that God went to to deal with our sin upon the cross. It was our sin that nailed the lovely Lord Jesus to the tree. When God in His mercy determined to save sinners, there was only one way it could happen. God the Son must leave the glories of heaven and come into this sin-cursed world in human flesh, and he must suffer and die. The just for the unjust, he must carry our guilt and punishment and die in our place upon the cross, or there is no way that our sin could be righteously forgiven. Sin is such a terrible evil that nothing less than the bloody agony and death of the very Son of God could ever atone for it. And my dear brothers and sisters, if my sin and your sin did that to our Savior, how can we ever take sin lightly? How could we ever toy with it and play with it? And not be grieved whenever we see it in ourselves and repent of it? How could we see it lying on our brother and not warn him and admonish him in love? As I close, if you're here today and you're unsaved, I trust you also see, my friend, that sin is no laughing matter. Mark it down. I think it was Spurgeon who put it this way. You and your sin must separate, or you and your God can never come together. But the good news of the gospel is that there is hope and pardon and forgiveness and salvation. For all who repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross and that includes you no matter who you are no matter what you've done though your sins be as scarlet they can be as white as snow for the blood of Christ cleanses us from all iniquity when we run to him for mercy Jesus in our think about this Jesus in our text think, would Jesus forgive me? Jesus in our text here, He commands people to forgive those who sin against them when they repent. Even if they do it seven times in a day. And later on, in another place, He says, 70 times seven. Which simply means, there's to be no limit of our forgiveness. Now, if Christ commands us to forgive our brothers and sisters in that way, do you think that He will not forgive you? if you come to him acknowledging your sinfulness and look to him by faith for mercy and salvation, does he expect us to be more merciful than he is? Of course not. He came into the world for the very purpose of saving sinners and he will never turn away any sinner who comes to him for that salvation. Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is able. He is willing, doubt no more. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It's so clear and powerful. We thank you, Lord, for this portion of your word. Help us to take it to heart. Help us to put these things into practice as believers in order that we might be helpers to one another's faith, that we might preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, that we might preserve the testimony of the gospel both in the church and to the community around us. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.